Well, good evening, everyone. This humongous crowd that we have here. <laughs> I would love to see more people show up, uh, but I'm so thankful for those of you that have been coming. I, I see this, the same faces, so I uh, really appreciate your faithfulness to be here. Uh, it's, it blesses me to have you here. It would be really weird to teach to empty pews, so I appreciate it. And I uh, also appreciate all those that are uh, able to listen at home as well. Uh, Malachi, if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. And the goal today would be to pretty much finish up with chapter 2, although I'll leave um, verse 17 for the next time uh, to connect that to chapter 3. Not that all of it's not connected, but we're looking at tonight verses 13 through 16 uh, in Malachi chapter 2. And just to recap from, from last week, uh, remembering that the, the men uh, had gone after foreign women, were devoted to uh, false gods, and this profaned the covenant God had made with their fathers. Malachi called out this action uh, on their part as treachery and an abomination. And this was, it was throughout the land. It was among all the people, including those uh, at Jerusalem and in the priesthood. Now, it doesn't mean that every single Jew was doing these things, um, but that it's enough of them that the, the nation is being called out as a whole. Uh, you know, much like if, the, you know, if a football team, if half of a football team is giving 20% of effort, making a ton of mistakes, and they lose the game, the coach is going to have everybody in the locker room, and he's going to be yelling at them all. Though there are some there who gave 100% and who are not at fault, they have to endure the... Uh, the scalding that comes to them, uh, but it doesn't mean that everyone was doing that thing. Um, and, and in a similar way here, there's not every single Jew was doing this, um, but it was, it was a large number. Um, we don't know exactly how many, but it's enough that um, this message has to come to them as a whole. Um, and again, this was an assault on the holiness of God, which God loves. God's name will be honored as holy, and that's what God is after. So the men doing this are, are cursed, and their descendants are cursed by being cut off. They're, they're cast out of God's presence because, in reality, they're an unbelieving people, and God preserves his covenants, so they are, they're cut off to protect the sanctity of of his holy name. They try to bring an offering to him. They've been continuing to try to bring an offering to him, and it's an offense to God and, and of no benefit to them. Uh, so now Malachi continues with another but related charge against the people in this next section of chapter 2, uh, and it appears that they are already experiencing God's rejection of their offerings. So, so this is an explanation for what they're experiencing because of their sin. And here we see that the abomination of intermarriage with pagan women that we talked about last week is preceded by these men's actions in divorcing and abandoning their Jewish wives. There was apparently a, a powerful draw of seduction and lust after these foreign women, enough that the Jewish men were willing to abandon the covenant that they made with their, uh, with their wives in the presence of God and the people, and this, God says, is violence and faithlessness or treachery 
toward their wives. So God would not accept their offerings with, with favor any longer. And this is a source of sadness and confusion for the, the people, apparently, uh, which we'll talk about because it is not, uh, it's not a beneficial kind of sadness, and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit as well. So let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you for all those that are here uh, and for all those who are able to watch online. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you have preserved throughout the generations, that your people can continually know what you have said, or that we don't have to go seeking other, other sources. Father, you, your word is true, it is right, and you have kept it, though many have tried to destroy it. Uh, Father, what a gift uh, that you do what you will with your word. And we ask tonight that you would do so in our hearts, Lord, that you would uh, teach us, that you would uh, encourage us, warn us if necessary. Um, and Father, that we would be blessed by the hearing of your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your kindness, and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith or the gift of repentance. That you have, have made a way, Lord, through Christ for us to be reconciled to you through the forgiveness of sins. We are so grateful. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read the passage here, Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 13 through 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay, again, he's already charged them with the abomination of intermarrying with pagan women. And now he gets to the second thing, which is the divorcing of their wives. And before uh, Malachi gets to the specific reason why, which is divorce, he, he talks about the results of this sin uh, among God's people, what, what the outcome of that is. And we see that kind of first off. The first thing that we see is that he says that they cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. And we get the sense from this that there is some serious anguish going on here. This is no small thing that God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. That's what Malachi said there. What is going on? Here, this is, this is very serious. So my, my first question to you then is, um, well, why would a person come before the Lord with offerings? What are some of the reasons that the people came before the Lord with offerings in the first place? 
Sin. sin, okay? Offerings for sin, that their sin would be dealt with. What else? What was that? Okay, seeking the Lord's blessing. Thanksgiving, excellent. Any others? There's a lot of them. <laughs> Fellowship, yeah. What was that? Okay, part of the commandment. And they would come and they would, they would praise God for his provision. Uh, all kinds of reasons why God's people come before God through his priests and offer offerings and sacrifices, okay? Sin is the number one reason why God's people come before him. They, they are sinful. We are sinful. Um, but we also come before the Lord for praise, for thanksgiving. Um, and ultimately, these were all expressions of worship before the Lord. As the people come, they come and they, they worship in this way. Similar with us. We come to church. We come to Bible study. We, we sing. That's worship. We're singing praise to God. We read the word of God. We're worshiping God. We're listening to what he's said. We give offerings. This is another way of worshiping God. Um, all of these things are ways that God's people acknowledge their reliance upon God for everything. Okay, so you, you see then this was a, a serious problem because their communion with God has been uh, impacted. They all knew they were, they were sinners and needed God, and this was their avenue that, for, for dealing with that, to come and offer, to come and, and make sacrifices. Um, and they were always able to come before the Lord through the priests and worship him, having their sins dealt with, um, and they, would, they could leave restored and in right fellowship with God and, and be, uh, be joyful, uh, and now that was gone. There's a, there's a hindrance here. And that brings us to the subject of the tears and the weeping and groaning that's going on. It, and it makes it more understandable um, that there would be this type of response when we, as we've talked about why they come in the first place. Now we understand why when that's broken, there's this, this response of groaning and, and weeping and tears. But whose tears? Who do the tears belong to? Is it the tears of the women who've been abandoned by their husbands? Some, some think that this is the case because of the treachery of the men divorcing their wives. God no longer sees the actual offering being brought by these guys, but, but all he can see is the tears of these women. That's, that's one viewpoint on it. But that seems, it seems difficult to justify because of what follows in the text. Um, it, the text identifies the tears as belonging to the ones who are making the offering that is not accepted. It says, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. When we look at that, um, that whole verse there, verse 13, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. It doesn't seem to make sense that the Lord would not accept offering from the victim of abandonment and divorce, but it seems directed at the one who is guilty of this and who still comes with, with offering. And it seems to make more sense than that the tears belong to someone who's 
offering what is unacceptable because of their violation of God's law. Though I do think God knows the suffering and the tears of these women, and I don't think those are the tears that it's talking about. Uh, Second, this isn't talking about the men coming with an actual cup full of actual tears and pouring it on the altar. They're, They're in some form of anguish, tears, weeping, and groaning because God used to accept their offering, but now he does not. I believe the point here is that those men involved in this sin, including some of the priests, are now feeling the effects of the rejection of God um, of what they're bringing to him. And perhaps even offerings for this particular sin, hoping that by, by bringing an offering, uh, it'll be dealt with. And God will God'll just let it go. And the scary thing is that they, they don't seem to be able to comprehend why God will not accept their offering. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, it's easy, we can look at this and we can read it. We can go, yeah, duh. No wonder he's not accepting your offering. But again, this has kind of been their pattern here in the book of Malachi, is they, they don't seem to, either they actually don't get it sometimes, or they're just so arrogant and belligerent that they don't think God is just in dealing with them the way, the way that he is. So God is going to have to clear things up for them, and that is what he's doing through his prophet Malachi. Uh, if, if they didn't know it yet or sense it in their spirit, Malachi is making it clear now that, that what they're offering to God is of no use. It's, it's useless for, for anything. So another question. When you read that portion of this verse about tears and weeping and groaning, what would be the wrong conclusion for us to make about the heart condition of these people? They've got tears, they've got all these things. What would be the wrong conclusion to come to about their heart, the condition of their hearts? They weren't repentant? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the wrong conclusion is that these tears mean that they're in repentance. Because they're not. Uh, you know, they, they, they've got the tears, they've got, um, you know, the weeping, uh, but they're not coming before God in repentance. But you say, well, why is, why is God not merciful to these people? Look at all their, look at all their tears. Uh, well, we know and we believe that God is a merciful God, don't we all? We all know that to be true. We believe that. But God will not be mocked He'll not be played the fool by fake devotion to him, and that's what's, that's what's going on. So, so do people's tears and sorrow necessarily mean that they're sorry for their sin? What else could it mean? Sorry they got caught. Sorry they got caught? Okay. What else could be there? Sorry, because now they can't do or have whatever it was they were doing or having. Sorry, maybe even because of shame. Um, but none of those things equal actually equal repentance. There can be tears and sorrow and shame without repentance. And you can, you can have all of those things expressed through tears. The things that we mentioned, they can all be expressed through tears. But at the same time, you can still have a very hard heart. Uh, you know, when, uh, when you're disciplining a kid, 
Yeah, that's the point. You can, you can take away their phone for disobedience, and they'll be upset about it, but it's not necessarily because they're sorry. They just want that thing. Yeah. Um, you know, in this particular text, it doesn't leave us to wonder uh, which emotion is behind these tears. The text answers that question. These are, these are tears. They are tears of sadness, and, but sadness is not repentance, again. They're, they're simply sad because God will not accept their worship. They're, they're not sad because of the, re, uh, the rejection. Uh, in other words, they're not sad because of their sin. They need, what they need is a godly sorrow, and what they have is a worldly kind of sorrow. Can you, can you think of any biblical examples of people that had tears or sorrow that you might assume were tears of repentance, but we know they're not from the scripture? Think of any examples of people like that? I don't know. Cain cried, but he was upset. Yeah, Cain was, was very upset over a, a, similar, a similar situation, but he was not repentant. Any others? Rich young ruler. Okay. He was sorrowful, sorrowful, but but not repentant. He went away very sad. Any others? Yeah, Esau is another example. Uh, he, the scripture says that he sought repentance with tears, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that he was actually repentant. Um, but he's, he's another case of somebody who was sorrowful and upset by the circumstances, but not over his own sin. No. What was that? Oh, the, the brother of the prodigal son? Okay. Yeah, he was very upset and, and did not have a good attitude or, or an attitude of repentance over his sin. I don't know if it uses those words, but you can tell by his reaction that he did. <laughs> he did regret it, but not, not to repentance. Um, you know, another example would be Judas. You know, Judas, well, he was very sorrowful. You know, he took back the money and threw the money back, and, but what, he went and hanged himself. He didn't, there was no repentance there, and the scripture says that he went to his own place. So, it's, it's an important thing that, that we understand that just because there's tears and sorrow doesn't mean that, you know, that there's repentance. And so when you look at it, and some might look at it and think, well, God seems kind of harsh here. Look at, look at how upset the people are. But God knows the heart. He certainly knows that their motivation is not coming before him in humility and, and with repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10 says, uh, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, so there's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And one produces death, and one produces life. Uh, and that's what, what these people didn't have. This is, this is what God's after. It describes the person that, 
that God is merciful toward. Um, but the people in Malachi's day had a worldly grief or sorrow, not, not godly. Godly grief is grief. Um, it's godly grief is grief at having offended the holy God and has acknowledged or, and has a knowledge about it and an agreement with God that you deserve nothing but punishment. That's a, that's a godly kind of grief. Whereas a worldly kind of grief is that which is, is only irritated by what has now bothered you for a time. It's marked by pride and disagreement with God that what you have done is really that bad. That's a, that's a worldly kind of grief. Um, and again, they, they continued to come and try to make an offering to God. Even in the midst of this and in, in the lack of repentance, they would continue to come and try to make an offering to God, and it's rejected. It was no longer acceptable for God to receive anything from their hands. The fact that they were trying really betrays their lack of sensitivity to the truth about how deplorable sin is. And living in an unrepentant sin really is the problem here. God doesn't want this kind of offering. He's not moved by it. And this kind of thing that, that this is the kind of thing that God cannot stand. And we have an example. If you want to turn to Isaiah um, and look at an example that we have there in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, and here God is extremely angry over Israel's sin. And look at verses 11 through 15 and how God talks about what, what they're doing, what they're offering to him. Verse 11 of Isaiah 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has, uh, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Okay, that's, that's pretty serious. That's pretty severe. These things that God has called them to do have now become a, a stench to him because of, of how they're coming before him. And, and what he says there in that passage that I think is the most uh, telling is, he says in verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Okay, you're coming before God in your unrepentant sin and this pretending of devotion and, and assembling of God's people, and he cannot endure that. that, that that's not a mixture that, that God... Uh, tolerates, okay? So he's, he's very serious about this with the people there. But will God turn away the repentant sinner? No. Now look what it says in Ezekiel 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Hey, God is constantly, we see in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, constantly calling his people to repentance. Come back. Okay? Then we see something, uh, back in our Malachi text, we see something familiar to chapter 1. When, when a charge is brought against the people and they don't know why, they respond as, as if they're shocked by it. Let's look at verse 14 in, in Malachi chapter 2. Okay, verse 14 is, but you say, okay, so Malachi's made the charge already, that they're covering the Lord's altar with tears, and he no longer regards their uh, offering with favor. Uh, and he says in verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They're, they're continuing to come, and and they're so far removed from the truth of God and, the, and the, their consciences are so seared, apparently, that they're, that they're so seared to their sin that they can't even figure out why God will not accept their offerings. And Malachi, knowing their, what's in their heart, because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, he knows that their response to God about his not accepting their offering um, is, why not? Why won't he accept my offering? And he gives, he gives the reason. And it's, and it's because of the treatment of the wife of their youth, to whom they've been faithless, though she is their companion and wife by covenant. And the wife of their youth is the wife they married and made vows to in the sight of the people and of God. It's another, it's another of God's children that they married, not an illegitimate daughter of a foreign pagan god like we, we looked at last week. Uh, it was understood that there was security and protection and commitment and devotion to this marriage. And here Malachi accuses them of being faithless towards, towards them. And again, some of your translations have used the words dealt treacherously with them. <clears throat> that's how that's described. He even specifically reminds them, in case they had forgotten, that God saw the covenant that was made. He said, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. This doesn't escape God's knowledge. You can't hide this. So question, why should that mean something to them? Why should it mean something to them that the Lord was witness Any thoughts on that? You can even think about it in terms of your own life. Why, why, is it, why should it mean something that God knows every deed done in darkness? Every thought. Okay, that's, that's true. When, when the, the two become one flesh, there is a spiritual alignment there. That's true. But why should it mean something to them that God witnessed that? Because 
He was there. He, he created them. He's their creator. Okay. God initiated that covenant. Okay. Yeah, God, God was there when they entered into the marriage covenant. God has been with them in their marriage. God has given them the instruction for having a God-centered marriage. And now God is still there and still seeing when these men are actually hating their wives and lusting after pagan women. And again, there, there should be, the reason it should mean something is there should be a godly grief leading to repentance. The fact that God sees and God knows what we do, every single thing of evil that we do, it should bring about a godly grief and lead us to repentance. But instead, Malachi says, they say, why won't he accept my offering? He says, in addition to the fact that, that she was his wife of covenant from his youth, she has also been your companion. Okay? And it's a word used only here in the Old Testament, and it really is synonymous with wife, and, and it comes from another root word meaning knit together, this idea of a, this companionship. This is a knitting together, uh, and it goes to what, uh, what was said earlier about them becoming one. And, and if that sounds familiar, it's for a reason. That's because it's, it's in the Scripture in several, several places, including the very beginning in Genesis 2.24. It's God's plan for marriage from the beginning. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? And this, this brings us into the next verse describing uh, this oneness in verse 15 of Malachi chapter 2. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And we understand that two people do not physically become absorbed into one another. Okay, uh, Maybe in the movies they do that. Um, but this is in a spiritual sense. The idea is that they are united together and united to the Lord. This is in a, in a spiritual sense. And in a similar way, we're united to Christ. Okay? We, we don't physically absorb into Christ, but spiritually we identify with him, and, and we are one with him. He indwells the believer in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul talked about this in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 2.20, remember what he said there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And turn with me, if you would, to a very familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at what Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, and specifically verses 28 through 32. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay? This refers to Christ and the church. And he said it's a profound mystery. And it certainly does not suggest it's something you just throw away or that, you know, that's of no importance uh, as, as our world would have us believe about, about marriage. But it is, it's a profound mystery. And that's what marriage is. As we look at marriage and the covenant of marriage, it, it is a picture of Christ and his church and that relationship there. And these men in Malachi's day were certainly not treating their marriage as, as uh, the important covenant that it is. Um, and so Malachi goes on to tell them why God wants his believing men united in marriage with other believing women. He says God is seeking something. He is desiring something to come from this union. So what is it that comes from the marriage of those two devoted to God? Godly offspring, right? Children that are also devoted to God. Well, how is it then that God intends for this type of marriage to produce godly offspring? We, we all know that children don't just come out into the world, <laughs> you know, perfect, or they, they don't come out into the world sinless, and they don't come out into the world knowing and loving God. So, so how is it that God intends for this type of marriage to produce godly offspring? Okay, yeah, so did you have something, Rosie? Yes, they are taught by their parents. Right. By godly parents on what to do and how to behave and what God expects of them. That's right. Like, like Arion said and Rosie said, you know, they're both true. That, that the intention is, is that they would raise them up to know and love God. They would teach them what God has said. Um, you know, we see that throughout the Old Testament. The, the people of God commanded to pass these things on to their children and teach their children about the mighty power of God and what God has done for his people. Uh, but that's what is intended, that, um, that they teach their children by word and by example. Okay? By, by the word of God and by example, the example of their own lives lived uh, in obedience to God. So looking back at last week's lesson, then why... Is it then that a marriage to a pagan cannot produce this godly offspring? <laughs> because pagans don't believe in God. Absolutely. But you have, okay, so uh, one of God's people marries a, an unbelieving pagan woman. Um, he still has believed in God. What's the problem? Why can't that still produce this godly offspring even though that pagan woman doesn't believe in God? Okay, confusion because of the, the mixture of darkness and light, okay. There's no example to follow. There's no, there's confusion. And, and we know from the scripture that we looked at before that the husband will, what's going to happen is the husband will learn the pagan ways of his wife. 
and that's what he'll follow. This will draw him away from the Lord. Okay? The institution of marriage between one man and one woman is God's invention, like, like Vic said earlier. It is, it's his plan, it's his design. The point is that his people would produce more of his people. People that worship him as Lord and live in obedience to him, bringing glory to him, would have and raise children to worship him as Lord and live in obedience to him and bring glory to him. And it goes on and on and on. God intends for his people to, um, to produce godly offspring and to teach them. And that cannot happen when a godly person marries an ungodly person. The scripture is clear that they'll be turned by the ungodly. And, and what this produces is ungodly people having and raising ungodly children who will not know and fear God. They'll not worship him as Lord and live in obedience to him. They'll certainly not bring glory to him. I mean, until they receive final judgment, which that will bring glory to God. And clearly from the text that we see that, uh, that many had fallen into the sin of divorcing their wives. They, they had not kept their covenant with their wives. Um, but now we see a warning to those you know, who have not yet fallen to this, to this sin. And maybe some, are, some of the people, I, I think we could probably say, some of the people were, were faithful to God. God says he always has his remnant. Uh, but maybe there are some there that are on the cusp of falling. They're, they're following in the example of these others, and, and they're in temptation and, and near falling to this. And that is why this warning is given. Why should they listen to it? Because they can see and they can hear the results now of, of this rejection of others. It, that should be clear, make it clear to them, I better not follow in that way. I, I will, my offering will not be accepted anymore. I will be cut off. And he says in our, in our verse there, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. They're told to guard themselves. What, what would they have to be on guard for? How can they protect themselves? Not be around, Not be around pe- pagan women? Okay, that'd be one way to protect yourself. Yeah. Okay, yeah, they were, we talked about that last week. They were supposed to, when God told, when they took the land, they were supposed to drive everyone out, but they didn't. They weren't obedient to that. So this, the paganism and all that has always been there, and it's just been this constant thorn there. Yeah, they are a snare to them. What else, what, what else would they have to be on guard for? Or how can they protect themselves? Okay. Right, the seduction, again, not being around the pagan women is a way to protect yourself. And what are you protecting yourself from? The seduction, the, the lust, those kinds of things that might come from that. The, the wandering of their hearts towards sin. Yeah. Um, another way to protect themselves is to know the word of the Lord. To know God, to fear God. Sin is waiting, right? We're told that in the, in the scripture. You know, Cain was brought up earlier, and we see an example of that in Genesis 4-7. Here's what God said to Cain. Yeah, after Cain is really upset now about his, his offering being rejected. And God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's how God describes sin. It's there. It's crouching at the door. Um, we, we have to be on guard, not just them. We have to be on guard. All of us have to be on guard for these things. Okay? Um, let's go back to Malachi chapter 2 and look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay, some other translations say, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Um, that's the New King James. The NLT says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God. The NIV says, the man, the man who hates and divorces his wife. Uh, the NASB says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And the ESV is, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her. Um, so there are some differing ways that this verse has been translated, and we see that it ranges from, from God hates divorce to talking about the man who divorces his wife uh, as either hating her or not loving her by that action. And since I'm not a linguistic scholar, this is a, this is a difficult passage to work through. Um, and, and I think that when people make the statement, God hates divorce, <clears throat> this is where it comes from. It comes from um, this verse and from those particular translations that, that translate it that way. Uh, and if the verse is best translated that God hates divorce, it doesn't make it untrue that if a man divorces his wife in this way, he's also hating her and not loving her. Um, and the reverse of that is true, I think, too, that, that if the translation, if it's best translated that the man is hating his wife or not loving his wife by divorcing her, certainly doesn't change the fact that God hates divorce. Okay? But we also must be careful that we must be careful that we don't make divorce the, the final unpardonable sin. And we can tend to feel that way about it, and we can tend to send that message or even explicitly say that. Um, but the Bible doesn't say anything like that. Okay, divorce, like every sin, puts the sinner in the path of condemnation. You know, if we sin in one area of the law, we've violated all of it. We are sinners. Um, if a person divorces, can they not repent and put their trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation? Absolutely they can. Okay, so we don't, we have to be careful. We don't want to send the message ever in, in these kind of discussions that, that divorce is the worst thing ever and you, there's no coming back. There, there's no hope for you. Um, if a Christian divorces, do they lose their salvation? I don't believe so. I don't, I don't believe the scripture teaches that, that Christians can lose their salvation. Is it something that needs to be repented of? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but none, of this, none of this is intended to have you believe that, that divorce is good or that it's okay. Okay, that's not the message that we're sending here. We should not have the attitude that, well, <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce and I know it's a sin, but God will forgive me. Okay, like you're, you're planning... 
You're planning your sin around the fact that you know God is a forgiving God. Okay, that's, that's not a good attitude. That's an attitude that Paul condemns in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And we also need to know that God has, God has made it so that there are certain biblical grounds for divorce. But there's not many. And, and this, is, this is a whole study in itself. I mean, we're not going to be able to touch on all of this tonight. But, but we should understand and be aware that God does permit divorce in certain cases. Not because he likes divorce. Okay, He's permitted it because of the hardness of people's hearts. And I, I think it's been well said that, that divorce is always a result of sin, but it is not always a sin to divorce. It sounds a little confusing, but if you think about it, it's, it's true that if there were no sin, divorce wouldn't happen. Because you wouldn't have selfish people divorcing for their selfish reasons. Um, but we are sinful people, and, and divorce exists because of sin. Um, but looking at an example of when Jesus was asked about this question, he gave an answer to it in Matthew 19, verses uh, 7 through 9. So they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, even there you can see a, a permission there. It's not a, again, this should never be looked at as a good thing, but it is a, a result of sin. It's a product of sin. Um, so it's something that, that is not to be taken, taken lightly, but it's also something that we as Christians have to be careful about um, viewing it or communicating to people that, you know, you're done. You've, you've divorced, so you're, you're out. Um, because that, that is not true. That's not scriptural. Uh, you're taking away from them uh, the ability to benefit from the mercy of God through repentance and faith in Christ. What's that? Yeah, to not, and to not be fully restored. Absolutely. Um, so he talks about this in verse 16, this, this divorce as violence. And he says, um, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he, this person who does this covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Cover... Covers his garment with violence. <clears throat> and this word about the garment um, that is covered with violence <clears throat> excuse me, is interesting to look at. And it's most likely referring to the old custom where a man would place a garment over a woman that he intended to be his wife. And this symbolized the trust and the protection of the marriage covenant. Uh, and, and to divorce in this way, according to this passage, is to do violence to that covenant. We see an example of this in, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. He said to her, Who are you? And she, said, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And some of your translations may, may say uh, skirt or garment there. 
uh, Ezekiel 16, 8. Now, this is interesting because it's God talking in this way about Israel, about his people. Okay, he says, when I, and it's in this whole section, if you want to look at it later in Ezekiel 16, it's in this whole section where God is talking about Israel's faithlessness and how, how God, even in spite of that, uh, comes after them. And, and this is how he's, God has viewed them. Okay? He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Okay, it's the same thing there. And, and here God is talking about it in, in terms of his people as a whole, that he, when they were of that age, that age for marrying, he's, he's equating it to this idea of, the, of marriage and this garment. And so God has done the same thing with his people and covering them with his garment, saying, you're mine. There's protection there. There's commitment there. Uh, there's security there. Okay, so that's... Uh, that's something that we need to think about there. But, but what they're doing is doing violence to that covenant. That at one time, they covered the wife of their youth with their garment, and they promised this. And now they're casting it aside. They're, they're doing violence to this. And then the, the warning is repeated. This person covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Okay, so these, you have this, the same warning repeated twice, and what you have is all these people committing this sin, and they continue to come before the Lord, trying to offer, offer to him, and they are unrepentant. They're not coming to him in humility. They're not acknowledging their sin. They're coming as if nothing was wrong, as if God didn't know, uh, or they could hide it from God. And that, of course, is impossible. What God wants, according to Psalm fifty-one seventeen, is it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's good news for us. That is good news for people, for sinful people who, who come to the Lord in repentance and seeking forgiveness of sins. He will not despise you. And that, that is absolutely good news, but that is not how these people in Malachi's day were coming before the Lord with their, with their sacrifices. They were continuing as if, as if nothing was wrong. Okay, and so we have a God that is, is a merciful God, but he's also a just God. He, he gives mercy to whom he gives mercy, and what we see as the pattern in Scripture is that he gives mercy to those who are broken and contrite and repentant and coming to him, having laid it to heart that his name is holy and that he is the only offering of forgiveness of sins that there is. Um, and that is not how these people were coming. Um, and it was, it was that, that that Paul was commissioned for, to go and bring this message out. He, when he was before uh, King Agrippa, he was explaining his conversion and what Jesus said to him. 
And, and what Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, 18, as Paul describes it, is that he's sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so if we can get anything from, from this section of Scripture, and there we, there's a lot of things we can get here, but as Christians, in our day and age, we need to remember these things. We, we need to be on guard, be on guard for the sin that, that's crouching, that's waiting, um, and not to forget that as Christians, Christ has paid the cost for our sin. He, he is a propitiation for our sin. He, he took it all. Uh, and so that, again, doesn't mean that we abound in sin so that grace will abound, but, but we come to him over and over again in confession and repentance, knowing that he has forgiven us of our sins. And we live to be obedient to him, uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Okay, any questions uh, or comments before we leave? Uh, Acts twenty six eighteen. That was the last one that I was that I read. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll we'll close tonight. Father in heaven, thank you again for this night. Thank you for these reminders, Lord. Uh, even as you justly dealt with your people in Malachi's day. We can see that, Lord, and, and we ask, Father, that through this and through any of our reading of the Scripture that we would continually have uh, a godly fear, Lord, a, a godly reverence for you, that your name would be holy in our words and our actions, that it would, it would uh, show that we have taken it to heart, Lord, that, that you are holy and that your name will be honored. Um, we pray, Father, that you would help us to be on guard for sin. We thank you, Father, that through Christ you have offered uh, salvation, the forgiveness of sins. What an amazing, amazing gift um, that we are so thankful for. Lord, I pray you'd help us never to forget it as we sing it to one another, as we teach it through your word, as we participate in communion, all these things that we do, at baptism, all these things that continually remind us of sin, but our death to sin in Christ and being raised to newness of life in Christ, and Lord, the hope of eternity that we have as we look forward to Christ's return. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name, amen.